Good morning. Welcome to Christmas at New Hope. And as Andy said, yesterday was quite a day. It's been a, quite a week here as we made preparations for the giveaway day. And then yesterday we got to carry that out. And it was a blessing, I'm sure, to a lot of people. Uh, some of you <laughs> may be aware of the fact that we have tried to install some a little bit of some security here at the church. On the outside of our building, we have some ring cameras. And there are certain ones of our leadership that are connected with that so that if someone comes onto our campus, it alerts us via our phones. I was alerted that somebody came on and parked on our campus out front yesterday morning at 3.59 a.m. And that's when the people started to arrive for our giveaway day. And uh, Jim, uh, wherever he's at, okay, Jim and uh, myself and Fred Williams were going to take charge of parking like we do at Vacation Bible School. We planned to be here at 5.30, but when I saw that, I got up here with Bonnie about 5.15. There's already 20 or 30 people sitting under the canopy, one in a lawn chair backed right up against the door. And so... So Bonnie and I came in the back way, I came in here and I walked right up here and walked out the door by the organ, went around the building, out to the parking lot to start directing the people that came in. We parked the entire parking lot full, we parked the new south parking lot full, and then we started parking them uh, too deep in our front yard from the south end, went all the way out to the north drive and then started parking them in the north 40. And uh, it was the largest one we'd ever had. And like Andy said, we probably helped a thousand different people or more. But it was a blessed day. Thank you to all of you that had a part in that. Whether you gave, donated, worked it, whatever, it was a blessed day. It is more blessed to give than to receive. God gave us his son, and we're going to take a look at more of the the great Bible doctrines of Christmas this morning, that's what we've been talking about. Two weeks ago, we looked at the virgin birth, that unique, miraculous, one-of-a-kind, supernatural birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that doctrine is enunciated through the Christmas story. And then last week, we took a look at the blood atonement, that unique, miraculous, one-of-a-kind, supernatural plan of God's salvation because the blood atonement is all through the Christmas story. This morning, I want us to look at the inspiration of Scripture. That unique, miraculous, one-of-a-kind, supernatural kind of book that we have that's called the Bible. The inspiration of Scripture is all through the Christmas story as well. I don't know about you, but I've heard people say from time to time, I just can't believe the Bible. I, I, I just can't do that. Have you ever heard somebody say that? Have you ever heard somebody say, well, how do you know there's a God? You can't prove that to me. So how do you know? How do you know? And sometimes somebody, you might hear somebody say, well, you just got to trust that burning in your heart. Well, bless your heart. That burning in your heart might be a result of what you ate last night. All right. That's not a good, good way to, 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 to judge that. What do you do with people that, that say, how do you know? What do you say to them? How do you say, listen, here's how I know what I believe. 
Well, I think a real good way to do that is take them to the Christmas story and talk to them about the inspiration of Scripture. It's one of the great Bible doctrines. And just in that one doctrine found embedded in the Christmas story, you can prove everything that, that I just talked about, the existence of God, the truthfulness of Scripture. In fact, what I'm going to tell you this morning, you don't even need faith to believe this because it's fact with a capital F, the inspiration of the Word of God. So in Matthew chapter 1, I want, to, I want you to notice verse 22. All this took place that what was spoken by who? Spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Matthew 1 verse 22. And then in chapter 2 verse 23, it says they came and resided in a city called Nazareth that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled, that he shall be called a Nazarene. The word of the Lord that came through the prophets, the inspired word of God that has been recorded for us. You see, I believe the Christmas story is one of the greatest evidences for the authority and the truthfulness of the word of God. And this morning, I want you to know there are at least 12 specific prophecies surrounding the birth of Jesus. Now, there's well over 300 prophecies about the coming of the Messiah, but when we're talking about his birth in Bethlehem, just those events surrounding his birth, there are at least 12 of them. You've heard of the 12 days of Christmas? Well, you can remember maybe the 12 prophecies of Christmas. Christmas, 12 accurate, fulfilled prophecies concerning the birth of Jesus, the first of which was written some 1,500 years before he was even born. Dr. A.T. Pearson, who is a noted scholar, has confirmed over 300 prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah, but maybe you're, maybe you're wondering, what's the difference between a prediction and a prophecy? He says there are three tests. Number one, he says the first test is that there must be such an unveiling of the future that no mere human foresight or wisdom could have guessed it. In other words, for us to sit here this morning and say, well, God has given me a prophecy here. It's going to rain again before the end of the year. Well, that's not a prophecy. That's a prediction. And you can look on your weather app right now and know that this coming week we've got several days of rain that we're supposed to get with a 60% chance on Christmas Day. That's not a prophecy. That, that, that can just be an educated guess, you know. It, it's, it's something that, that human foresight or wisdom could come up with. That's not good enough for a prophecy. For to be a prophecy, it's gotta be, there's got to be such an unveiling of the future that you couldn't guess it. No human foresight or wisdom could have foreseen that. Secondly, he says the prediction must deal in sufficient details to exclude shrewd guesswork. You know, some people can guess and get it right. There were people that, that predicted, some psychics that said back in 1963 that John F. Kennedy would be killed in Dallas, Texas. 
And he was. And there were people all over the nation go, wow, they got that right. Of course, they didn't tell you what day. They didn't tell you what hour. They didn't tell you how it would happen. They didn't tell you who would do it. They just said he would be killed in Dallas, Texas. But people were amazed at that prediction. Well, listen, I predict that someday I will die. And that it will be in the state of Illinois. And quite likely in Lawrence County. Well, that's not a prophecy. You see, to be a prophecy, it has to deal in sufficient details to exclude shrewd guesswork. Then a third test, he says, is that there must be such a lapse of time between the prophecy itself and the fulfillment to preclude the agency of the prophet himself in affecting the result. In other words, the prophecy has to be made, there has to be a sufficient amount of time so that the prophet can't go out and arrange or manipulate the circumstances so that it comes true. Now, E.T. Pearson said there are over 300 prophecies that pass these three tests in regarding the Lord Jesus Christ and His coming to earth. But this morning, I want to focus in on just these 12 prophecies of Christmas And you can write these down if you'd like. You can look up the scriptures if you want to. But 12 specific prophecies fulfilled at Christ's birth. Number one, he would be the offspring of a woman. All right? Genesis 3.15, God speaking to the serpent said, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Her seed. That prophecy is fulfilled in Luke 2.7 when Jesus comes to earth and he's the seed of woman. Not the seed of man, but the seed of woman. So you see how that works in passing those tests that Dr. Pearson talked about. Here's the second prophecy. The Bible says he would be the promised offspring of Abraham. In Genesis 12.3, God tells Abraham that he says, In you all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we know that blessing came through the coming of the Messiah that came through the family, the lineage of Abraham. Then a third prophecy. He would be the promised offspring of Isaac because God continued that promise and gave it to Isaac, the son of Abraham. And Genesis 17, 19 tells us that. Here's a fourth one. The Bible says he'd be the promised offspring of Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, of course. In Genesis 28, 14, God tells Jacob the same thing he told Abraham, and you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The fifth prophecy, the Bible says Jesus would descend from the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49, 10, uh, Jacob, Israel, on his deathbed is telling what would happen to his boys. And he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And unto him will be the obedience of the peoples. And so that's a prophecy of the coming of the Messiah that he would be from the tribe of Judah. And Jesus indeed was. Here's a sixth prophecy. The Bible says he would be heir to the throne of David. In uh, Isaiah 9 verse 7 it says there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time on 
and forevermore. And so he would be heir to the throne of David. Now we get even more specific. Prophecy number seven. He would be born in Bethlehem. In Micah chapter five, verse two. As for you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, and he was. Here's an eighth prophecy. And that is, the Bible even predicts the time of his birth and the beginning of his ministry. In the book of Daniel, chapter 9 and verse 25, it says, You are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, it will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. Scholars believe and agree that those were weeks of years and when you multiply those out, it comes out to 400 and some years and comes out precisely to the time of the birth of Christ and the beginning of his ministry, all right there. And Daniel prophesied that. Then Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, it predicts or prophesies that he would be born of a virgin. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. And we know that that was fulfilled. That same verse of Scripture gives us a tenth prophecy that he would be given the name Emmanuel. She will call his name Emmanuel. And we know that that did indeed take place. An eleventh prophecy is a strange prophecy from Jeremiah 31, verse 15, where it says, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. So a prophecy that infants would be slaughtered surrounding the birth of Christ. Did that happen? Sure. We know from Matthew chapter 2 verses 16 through 18 that Herod sent out a decree that all the male children in the region of Bethlehem should be slaughtered that were two years of age or younger, according to the time that he ascertained from the wise men. Why would that even be included in Scripture, such a gruesome story? It's true. Kenneth Bailey, in his book, uh, Jesus Through Mid-Eastern Eyes, he says that Matthew, being a Jew is proving that Jesus is the prophet that Moses spoke about. Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, The Lord will raise up a prophet for you like unto me. And Matthew is saying that Jesus is that prophet. How so? What happened at the birth of Moses? The slaughter of innocent children by the Pharaoh. Throw them in the Nile. What happened at the birth of Jesus? The slaughter of innocent children by Herod, showing that in the same way that Moses was born with the slaughter of children, the prophet that would follow and be like Moses would have the same thing. Interesting thought there. And of course that, took, that happened. Here's the twelfth prophecy from Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. And that is that uh, Jesus would have to flee into Egypt. 
When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Well, what happened when those children were being slaughtered? An angel told Joseph, get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt until those that seek the child's life are dead. And Joseph did that. They went to Egypt. And then at a certain time, the Lord, through an angel, told Joseph to bring the family back because those who sought the child's life were no longer in power. They were dead. And Joseph came back. Out of Egypt, God called his son. Now, why did, why did we go through that? Simply because I want you to know, and I want you to see how all 12 of those prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus and how God shows us what that means. Twelve specific prophecies surrounding the birth of the Lord Jesus, a part of the Christmas story. So when somebody says to you, well, I just have a hard time believing there's a God. I just don't know if the Bible's true. I, I don't know about this Jesus character. I just don't know. I don't know. All you have to do is take them to the Christmas story. In those 12 prophecies, not based on feeling, not based on faith, but based on fact alone, it verifies the inspiration of the Word of God and that this book is true. How is that possible? Well, one of the undeniable characteristics concerning the prophecies of Jesus is their minuteness of description and their precision of performance. In other words, the pinpoint accuracy of the prophecies of the Bible is impossible to deny. No one can deny it. Hundreds of years before Christ was born, how in the world did they predict those 12 things that, that we just noted? How did they do it? Did they do it by chance? Was it done by accident? No, of course not. It's obvious that God was in control of all that. There was a scholar by the name of Canon Dyson Haig who said, Who could draw a picture of a man not yet born? Well, certainly God and God alone. Nobody knew over 500 years ago Shakespeare was going to be born. We had no details of his birth. Or over 250 years ago that Napoleon would be born. We have no, no details of his birth. And let me just stop in the middle of his quote and make this point. This has never happened in the history of mankind. Never with anyone. I don't care who you name. Haig's quote goes on to say, Nowhere has it ever happened, and yet here in the Bible we have the most striking and unmistakable likeness of a man portrayed, not by one, but by 20 to 25 artists, none of whom had ever seen the man they were painting, and yet they painted him with absolute accuracy. They never saw Jesus. They never saw each other's work. And yet each portrait of Christ is absolutely accurate to the most minute detail. And I'm telling you that one of the things that isolates the Lord Jesus Christ from every other man that ever lived, whether it's Muhammad or Buddha or you or I, the fact that we have absolute, explicit details hundreds of years before he's born about his birth, about his life, about his death, even about his resurrection, all phenomenal predictions, supernatural prophecies, they all attest to the inspiration of the Word of God and that this book is true. Now, here's my point. Let's forget about theology for a moment. Let's, let's even set faith aside and all of that, and let's just talk about mathematics. You're dealing with an unsaved friend who says, well, I just don't believe the Bible. 
It's just a bunch of stories made up by a bunch of bearded old guys with towels on their heads years ago sitting out there with some sheep. No big deal. Really? Let's talk about the math of it. Mathematically, it is impossible to substantiate by chance factors that the prophecies of Jesus happened by accident. In other words, it is mathematically impossible for someone to say it happened by accident. So let me illustrate that for you. Let's decide that you and I are going to be prophets. And we believe we can make some profit by being prophets. And so we call the, the, the area newspaper and we say, well, uh, we got together on December the 17th, 2023, a big group of us at church in our auditorium, and God gave us a prophecy. And they say, well, what, what, what prophecy is that? And so, well, this is important. You're going to want to write this down. Okay, well, what is it? Well, we prophesy that Mount St. Helens is going to erupt again. I can tell that really moved you. It did erupt on May the 18th, 1980 at 8 something in the morning, the very day that Bonnie and I got married. It was not our fault. Okay. That doesn't move you, okay? But what if we said that Mount St. Helens is going to erupt again this Tuesday at 2.30 p.m.? Then it becomes different. The added details, it's a different story then. Just to say the sun's going to rise again, or that it's going to rain again, or that Mount St. Helens is going to erupt again, that's no big deal. But the more minute you get, the more detailed you get in prophecy, the more it's easy to tell a fraud from the absolute truth. So let's back up for a moment and think of these 12 prophecies that surround the birth of Christ. Absolutely accurate, minute in detail, and every time you and I add a detail or a fact to a prophecy, it becomes harder and harder for that prophecy to be fulfilled because I can tell that, you know, it, it just, it becomes more difficult for it to be fulfilled by chance. So let me illustrate it this way. Every time you add a fact, every time you add a detail, you multiply the number of chance factors. It's called the law of compound probabilities. Here's how it works. Since you're all looking at me, let's say that one man in ten is bald-headed. Okay? One man in ten is bald-headed. How many men do I have to have to show you that one man in ten is bald-headed? Ten. That's it. But let's say that one of the ten men that we have is also missing his left thumb. So now how many men do I have to have to show you that, that, that one man is bald and is missing his left thumb? To say there's one out of ten. Now I have to have a hundred men. But let's say that one man missing his left thumb is also blind in his right eye. Now how many men do I have to have to tell you that one in ten is bald-headed, missing his left thumb, and is blind in his right eye? Now I've got to have a thousand men. That's how it works, okay? That's how it works mathematically. Every detail you add, every fact you add to your prophecy blows exponentially the chance factors. Now, you can see where we're going with this, can't you, with Jesus? 
A.T. Pearson and those 300 confirmed prophecies about Jesus, every specific prophecy made about him to be true about one man, it just blows the chance factors to smithereens, making it totally impossible for it to happen by accident. I mean, think about it for a minute. What are the chances that some guy coming by accident to earth, fulfilling all the things the Bible says happened to Jesus, what are the chances? What's well, impossible? But there was a college, Pasadena College, I don't know how they came up with this project, but they decided to determine what the chance factors would be, how many men would you have to have to get someone to fulfill all of the prophecies of Scripture that were made, that were made about Jesus. They decided what they'd do is they would choose eight prophecies, just eight. And here are the eight they took. Number one, that he would be born in Bethlehem. Now, now let me tell you, first of all, how difficult that is. How many men would you have to have to show that one was born in Bethlehem? Out of all the people on earth, how many would you have to have to have the chances of one being born in Bethlehem? So what they did is they took the total population of the earth, divided it by the average population of Bethlehem, came up with the fact that you would need one man out of 280,000 to have one born in Bethlehem. <laughs> you see how hard that, just that one is. Here's the second prophecy. The second prophecy they took is that he would be born of a virgin. That really blew the chances, right? A third one. They said, let's take the prophecy he would be betrayed by a friend. Most people were betrayed by an enemy. He was betrayed by a friend. The fourth one, that he would be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. Number five, that that silver would be thrown down in the house of the Lord. The Bible predicted that, and that's exactly what happened. Number six, the Bible says they'd pick up that money and buy a potter's field with it. Number seven, the Bible says he would make his triumphal entry on a donkey. And number eight, the Bible says he would be crucified with sinners. So they took those eight prophecies just to see how many men you would have to have to find one man in history to fulfill all of that. And by the way, they, they used very conservative estimates. And they found in just eight prophecies that there was just one chance in 10 to the 28th power for one man to fulfill all of them by chance. And just to be fair, they subtracted 11 zeros from that taking into account the population factors so that it was really one chance in 10 to the 17th power. Now, how big a number is that? You've probably heard this illustration, but they illustrated it this way. If you had a silver dollar for every one of those 10 to the 17th powers, that you could fill the entire state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. Then you take one of those silver dollars, take a Sharpie out, put a black X on it, toss it out there and stir it up, then blindfold a friend, send him out into the state of Texas, and ask him to pick up the silver dollar with the X on it on his first try. That's the chances of one man to fulfill just eight of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And if you doubled it to 16 prophecies, they said you'd have a ball of silver dollars setting upon the earth that would stretch 300 times past the sun. 
and then you put your friend in scuba gear to go swimming in the silver dollars and try to find the one with the X on it. Folks, we have 12 fulfilled prophecies in the Christmas story alone. Jesus came and he fulfilled over 300. Absolutely accurate, absolutely verifiable, which tells us what? That Jesus is for real, that the Bible is true, and that when it comes to the Christmas story, I mean, it's absolutely true. You can trust the Bible in what it says. And one of the greatest Bible doctrines of Christmas is the inspiration of God's almighty word. And that's why I love seeing those nativity scenes. And when the lights are shining on them, every time you see those, they are proclaiming the gospel. And every person that passes by that nativity scene, every person that sees a manger scene, it's a proclamation of the truthfulness of the word of God. It's a great evidence of the truthfulness and the authority of the Word of God. Every place where you see Joseph and Mary and the baby and, and the shepherds and some animals, every time that's a, a declaration of the authority of the inspired, infallible, inerrant, immutable Word of the living God. Amen. It's true. And folks, if these great Bible doctrines of Christmas that we're looking at, if it doesn't shake your life like this one today, I don't know what will. As one man said, if that don't light your fire, you got wet wood. All right. Because what Christmas says to you and to me is that every bit of this book is true. And when God sent his son as a baby and that was laid in that manger, in that stable, outside of Bethlehem, John put it this way, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. And in the Christmas story, God is telling us, you can believe every word of it, every word. And you can take this message to your unbelieving friends. And you don't need faith for that. You don't need theology for that. You don't even need to feel good about it. Just look at the pure math of it. And when you add all of that up and you find out Jesus, Jesus is the sum of everything. The Christmas story declares that the Bible is true and that it can be trusted. And it declares to you and I, this is the word of God. And I'm telling you, that's good news of great, of great joy. That is for all the people. I don't know what decisions you might have that you'd like to make today. But I pray that you'll make them based upon the truthfulness and the authority and the inspiration of this book. I believe this book is absolutely true. I pray that you do too. So if you have a decision you'd like to make today, you can meet me down front as we stand and sing.